This season of Desert Island Dishes is brought to you in partnership with Cook's Matches. Cook's Matches have been the mainstay of British kitchens for over 40 years, and they remain the match for both cooks and chefs to use in the kitchen. With summer just around the corner, it really does feel that way, we aren't far away from barbecue season and all those gorgeous summer parties, which means you should have your cook's matches to hand to take you from lighting the barbecue at lunchtime right through to the evening when you can get some candles lit in the garden. No kitchen should be complete without a trusty box of these matches. They are just the easiest and most eco-friendly way to light everything from stoves to barbecues to candles. If you're stuck for what to cook this summer, then Cook's Matches loves compiling recipes to show easy, delicious and family-friendly dishes. Head over to their Instagram page at Cook's Matches and join the Cook's community. Find out more online by visiting cooksmatches.co.uk. Thank you very much to Cooks Matches. Hi, I'm Margie Namora and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off the Desert Island. Hi, how are you all? Hope you've all had a lovely week. So, for anyone who doesn't know, I am a chef. Well, I was. The pandemic and babies might have changed that slightly, but it's what I've done for most of my career. And after I left cookery school, the first professional cooking job I got was working for Sally at Clark's. That's not strictly true because I went to South Africa for three months to cook out there, but that was slightly different. So Clark's was my first experience of working in a commercial kitchen and I was really thrown in the deep end. They were short-staffed, so I was on service pretty much from day one, which was as exciting as it was terrifying. (laughs) If you aren't familiar with Clark's, it's very famous for daily changing menus, and the kitchens, much like the River Cafe, are open plan, so all the guests can see you cooking, which is kind of fun and makes for a friendlier kitchen, I think, because... I can be no shouting. (laughs) But lots of stories from that time. Lucy and Freud lived next door to the restaurant and used to come in daily. We would make him brunch, even when the kitchen was closed. So anyway, it feels like a bit of a full circle moment or whatever that phrase is. I went back to Clark's to sit down to interview Sally to talk about her new book, which came out last September. So I guess not that new anymore. (laughs) But this was recorded on a very hot day last September in Sally's restaurant. That's enough from me. Here is today's episode. My guest today is Sally Clark. Sally has been described as the unsung hero of British food and her cooking a masterclass in simplicity. She was just 14 when she envisaged the restaurant that she would one day open and this year Clark celebrates its 37th year. Despite the prevailing fad for Nouvelle Cuisine at the time she opened in December 1984, she never wavered in her mission to showcase fresh and seasonal ingredients, cooked simply and in her trademark unpretentious style. It's no wonder her restaurant was Lucien Freud's favourite haunt. In the 25th year of being in business, she was awarded an MBE in the Queen's Birthdays Honours List for services to hospitality, 
an award she very modestly states she shares with everyone involved in the running of Clark's. Alongside the restaurant, she runs a booming bakery business, which has over 120 wholesale customers and sees them making over 60,000 mince pies during the run up to Christmas. If you've ever tucked into a pan of chocolat on the Eurostar, chances are it was one of Clark's. She's just written her third and self-proclaimed final book. It has been said that she is a quietly successful restaurateur, described by Jason Atherton, amongst others, as Britain's answer to Alice Waters. Welcome, Sally. Gosh, wow. Thank you. (laughs) So the first thing I wanted to ask you is that I came across an interview you have done where they asked you what makes your success. And your reply was, and I don't know if you're going to remember this, but you said... I am not successful. If I was successful, I would have finished my second book by now. I would be able to afford a little house in the Luberon, maybe a little cottage in a vineyard in California, and I would have delegated more than I have. Do you really mean that, or how much of that was tongue-in-cheek? Well, I must have said that maybe 10 years ago, if it mentions my second book. But yes, I could say exactly the same now. So what do you think the measure of success is? Who knows? How do you measure happiness? (laughs) To me, walking around the dining room and seeing smiling faces from our customers and our staff, that's one way of making me happy. I've always said that a happy kitchen creates happy food. And there's only one way of making delicious food, and that is to be happy and content in in the preparation and the presentation. Well, from the outside... I think you are very much the definition of success. So I don't know if that means anything to you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Your love of food clearly began early in childhood. You grew up in Surrey, the daughter of an auctioneer father and a mother who was more interested in the garden than she was in the kitchen. That's correct. Yes. (laughs) So let's talk about the first desert island dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. Well, I remember my third or fourth birthday party. I would have had at least one brother by then and possibly a, a family friend or two around the table. But I remember distinctly the ice cream cake that my mother had bought from a local cake shop. And it was bright pink and over-decorated and must have had so much sugar in it. I can still taste it now. But it was like a sandwich cake and it was the most thrilling thing. And I think I asked for that same cake every year until I was probably eight or nine. (laughs) But it was definitely too much sugar, too much color and too much full stop, but delicious. Yeah, everything a birthday cake should be. Yeah, when you're three. Yeah. (laughs) I wondered what your answer was going to be to that because I read about the letter sandwiches that your mother used to make you oh, and yes. they sound very unusual very unusual i don't know where she got the idea from but it was a combination of white sliced bread we didn't make bread at home ourselves in those days spread with good butter and then very crisp salad leaves probably a little gem type of thing or um yeah something like that but then she sprinkled it with very crunchy granulated sugar and then put the the top of the sandwich on squashed it all together and stuffed it into my brothers and me after school and um, put big smiles on our faces 
it's such a unique combination. And I actually, I went to Google to find out if there was sort of the origins of the sandwich and nothing <laughs> is not there. <laughs> no, I think it was an entirely unique sandwich to your mother. I think it probably is. I'll have to ask her where she got it from. Yeah. And now we all need to try it because I think you can't hear something like that and not <laughs> run home and try to make it yourself. <laughs> Obviously, it's from your mother and those early years of your life that you fell in love with seasonality and learning to cook with what fruit and vegetables you had in the garden. It sounds like you started working really young. You got your first job at the age of just 12 and a half working for a local catering company. And by all accounts, you absolutely loved it. So tell us a little bit about that time. Well, when I was little, I loved ballet. And then um, there, uh, there came a day when all my school friends said that ballet was sissy and I should really get into horses instead. So I then decided that I should really learn to ride. And my father said, well, if you want to learn to ride, then you're going to have to earn part part of the money to pay for your lessons. So I introduced myself to a lo local caterer and, and asked if I could go and work for her. Um, and I was paid two pounds and sixpence an hour, which was a quarter of a pound, I think. Yeah, quarter of a pound in those days. And I loved every second of it every school holidays i would i would go and work with her and i would do wedding parties at the weekends or cocktail parties or garden parties and made gallons of bechamel sauce and cut the middles out of volivants for canapes and no loved everything and that's really i think where i um, where i caught the bug for cooking it's amazing. What an amazing start. And so after school, you went straight to catering college. You went to Croydon Technical College, where you spent two years and you describe it as basic, but great. Yes, very basic, but simply wonderful. One learnt everything from how to bake bread, to how to make pastry, how to fillet a fish, how to trim meat, how to make a bed, how to clean a bathroom, because it was hotel as well as restaurant work we were taught. Um, and a little bit about staff law and a little bit of accountancy. So it was a sound bite of everything to do with the catering industry. And I wouldn't have missed it for the world. I particularly like the story of you and the grapefruit. <laughs> <laughs> that was my first lesson. And we were presented with horrible yellow grapefruits. I really, really love pink grapefruits. But anyway, we had yellow grapefruits in those days. And we were told to cut them in half. And with a grapefruit knife, cut the segments out, which I did. But then I was told to put a glacé cherry on the middle as decoration. And I said, I'm very sorry, but I do not use glacé cherries. And I'm going to put a mint leaf on mine. But I was <laughs> told that that wasn't appropriate. But that was my first lesson. I think that's the most Sally Clark story <laughs> that you could have told. <laughs> And so after that, you headed to Paris to the Cordon Bleu, where you say you wanted to learn a sort of refined version of, of what you'd already learned. But actually, when you got there, you realized that the training that you had was sort of better than you kind of realized. Well, it certainly was. Everything I was being taught at the Cordon Bleu school was sort of mirrored from my Croydon days. But the fact that I was in Paris and able to walk the streets of Paris and experience the the street markets and to peer through restaurant windows and read their menus. The, the fact that I was actually in Paris and being able to speak French and hear French and sit on the bus and learn French by overhearing people's conversations, 
that's what made my my time in Paris. Yeah, it, it seems like a time where you really fell in love with food in a much deeper way whilst you were there. Most like, definitely. Yeah, which is invaluable, isn't it? Yes, yes. You know, you can't pay for that in a course. That's no, like, definitely not. And at the same time, I met American people for the first time en masse. I don't think I'd met an American person before I went to Paris, but the majority of my co-students at the Cordon Bleu were from California or from New York. And it was their unique blend of enthusiasm with inquisitiveness um, about food and cooking and sourcing of ingredients that really helped me catch the food bug again there. Going back to those early childhood days, you've said that there was a well-thumbed set of Elizabeth David cookbooks, which you read like novels, and your mother would task you with making lunch, which she would grow from the garden. So I can't wait to hear about your second desert island dish. And that is the first dish you learned to cook. Well, I think it was probably a rice pilaf. And I'm not sure whether it would have come from an Elizabeth David book. I would have to check. But it was very, very simple. My mother would would show me how to dice an onion. And then we would simmer it or saute it very gently in a little bit of oil. I don't think we would have had olive oil in those days in the house until it was almost soft. And then she would add a tiny spice or two, possibly turmeric, possibly cumin, I'm not sure. And then we would add the rice. It was probably nothing more extraordinary than Uncle Ben's rice. And then she would pour in Gnaw's chicken stock cube, (laughs) which she'd uh, melted with boiling water. And we would just sort of watch it simmer until the rice had puffed up. And it, you, I could, I can remember the smell of the kitchen. It was just divine, terribly simple, very straightforward. But I think it was learning about the timing of when to put certain ingredients in, in succession into a dish. I think I learned that because obviously any good cook would know that's a vital part of a recipe and method. I read a really lovely account of you and your friend from school called Candy, where you describe how you used to bake a lot of biscuits and cakes and all of that kind of thing. And uh, I wanted to know, do you remember the feeling of discovering how it felt to be able to make the delicious things that you wanted to eat? Did it sort of feel like being given the key to a secret garden or was, yes, it, was there a Yes, yes, no, it was most definitely. Candy lived in the most glorious house um, in the... Guildford Town Centre, we lived just on the outskirts, but her house um, was Lewis Carroll's house, so it was even more exciting going there. Huge, huge kitchen, and her mother and father would be incredibly generous. They would literally let us have the run of the kitchen, and we could make whatever we wanted. And whereas at home it tended to be savoury dishes that we would cook together, very rarely would we do cakes or biscuits at home. But at Candy's house, we always had cakes and biscuits. And um, no, I, I certainly got my love, sweet things there. So the Cordon Bleu was a three-month course, but you ended up staying in Paris for about a year, I believe, doing commie chef roles and sort of soaking up the experience. When you moved back to London, I think you had it in your mind that perhaps you wanted to try your hand at being a food writer. And I think the story goes that you wrote several letters 
And you got two particularly impressive responses. Can you tell us about I that? I did. <laughs> I remember being at, at home one afternoon and the phone rang and my mother, I was upstairs, my mother was downstairs, she answered the phone and she called up the stairs and said, Elizabeth David is on the phone for you. <laughs> and I think I couldn't quite believe it. But anyway, I'd written to Elizabeth David and I'd said that I'd thought that I knew everything about food and I would now like to write, please give me some advice. And she was the sweetest, most wonderful person, very patient with me. I can't remember how old I was, probably 15 or 16 or 17 at the time. And she gave me wonderful, wonderful advice. And that was, if you want to write, just Right. You'll get lots rejected, but one day something will be accepted and um, you will become a writer. And then everything came full circle because she did then end up coming to eat at Clark's and you, and you met her then, didn't you? She certainly did. One of my first managers at the restaurant was um, someone who knew Elizabeth David by sight. I didn't. And uh, I was in the kitchen beavering away at lunchtime and she said, you'll never guess who's just walked in. And it was Elizabeth David with Jill Norman, who was her uh, literary editor. And so uh, I'd never done it before, and I have done it very, very infrequently um, since. But I went up to the table and introduced myself, and um, she was glorious, lovely. The saying goes, you should never meet your heroes, but you presumably didn't find that to be true. And no, I, it, was, it, was, um, it was very lovely, and it was the beginning of a not terribly long friendship because she was already quite elderly then. But I remember visiting her at her house, and the one thing I really cannot forget are the beautiful, big, huge, dangly earrings she'd, she'd wear, and her beautiful hair was always piled up on top in a beautiful um, light grey bun so, um, yeah, no, lovely memories of her. And with her writing, are there particular dishes that you've returned to time and time again? Or was it more her philosophy and writing rather than dishes? I think it was the philosophy more. It was the, the taste and style that you can see so obviously within each paragraph that you can you can feel the sun on the back of your neck you can taste that olive oil you can smell the zest of the lemons um it's just the way that she wrote so evocative and and that i think as you said earlier you don't need to read them as a recipe book you read them as a travel journal or a historical journal or anything but a recipe book in fact let's pause there to talk about the third desert island dish and that is the best dish you've ever eaten probably it would have to be at chez panis which is my favorite restaurant in the whole world and in my opinion the best restaurant in the whole world but i've eaten there so often that i couldn't pinpoint one dish but i mean alice waters uh stands seasonality first and foremost, I think. And I think the one piece of fruit that I miss this year, because I haven't been to California for obvious reasons for over a year and a half now, I've missed the pluot, um, which is a, a cross between an apricot and a plum. Oh, wow. And I've only ever found it in California. And they're absolutely gorgeous. And uh, at the end of each meal, if you're lucky enough to be there around ju late July, August, 
there will be a pluot on a on the fruit dish that's presented at the table with your tisane. So I think rather than my favorite dish, I think I would go for a favorite piece of fruit. Oh, I like that. We've never had that as an answer before, <laughs> but that sounds delicious. So following on from your correspondence, the other um, reply that you got was from the one and only Prulis. Yeah. And so you went to work with her and you started as a teacher at her newly opened Leith's Cookery School. And from everything I read, at that point, you sort of knew that you desperately wanted to work in food, but you hadn't quite found exactly what your career was going to look like. And at that point, you got an opportunity to travel to California to work with a friend that you'd met on the Cordon Bleu. And you jumped at the chance. And really, that decision seems to have kind of changed your life. Yes, it certainly did. I think as far as Prue was concerned, I was probably the worst sort of employee. Because literally within a week, I think I'd handed in my notice and said, I'm off to California. And uh, being an employer now, I think that would be the last thing I'd want my... (laughs) my um, employees to to do to me. But I did. I dropped everything literally in London and headed for California. And I intended on being there for six, eight, nine months, perhaps, but ended up staying five years. I just fell in love with it and its food, the wonderful wineries there, the fantastic people that I met there and the restaurant industry. And I learned so much. I learned a lot about how not to do things as well as how to do things. Yeah, which so often in life, that is the most important lesson, isn't it? Figuring out what you don't want to do and you can kind of move on from there. You have described the first time you ate at Chez Panisse during this time as a sort of light bulb moment. And you've said that all the pieces of the jigsaw came together. Can you tell us about that first visit? Well, um, I was working in Southern California and I had heard uh, through the grapevine of a restaurant in Northern California called Chez Panisse. I'd never heard of Alice Waters before, but I was taken to this restaurant and as I walked up the brick steps to the front door and then turned the door handle. It just gelled, everything gelled. And all my thoughts that I'd had from teenage years of small menus and menus just to reflect what was best and freshest in the market on the day and the fact that there is no way that large, complicated menus could ever smack of seasonality or freshness or, at the moment, dishes. But uh, but seeing the menu that was presented to me that night, which was a first course, a main course, um, a little dessert, and then a tisane, a set menu, no choice, the following night would have been something completely different. It just made me think that this mad idea that I've had at the back of my mind since the age of 12 or 13 or 14 could actually possibly work. Maybe it could, if it can work in California and if if it could be this delicious and this special, perhaps it could work in London. That must have been the most exciting moment. Like, did it feel, I know everyone talks about a light bulb moment, but did it feel? It was very much a light bulb moment, especially when Alice came to the table herself. And even the waitress bringing the bottle of wine to the table, it was as if she had made the wine herself, the the sort of pride and uniqueness of 
the place and the moment was like no other. And even if in its 50th year now, two weeks ago, it was 50 years old, that same feeling and that same thrill is there for me each time I go. I think like with all the best ideas basically in life, they are often the the most simple. And you're right, it it really doesn't make sense for all of these restaurants to have these long, long menus that they all have and to your focus on seasonality and and therefore making everything fresh and making sure that everything's perfect. It does just seem to make so much sense. It just makes sense. (laughs) Did it seem strange at the time that beyond Chez Panisse, people weren't seeming to think in the same way as you? There, There were certainly other people in California who were thinking along the same track as as Chez Panisse, but certainly not in a set no choice menu format. But yes, she's she's leading the world on seasonality and uh, the education of children as to where they're so not only Shea Panisse itself, but the concept, but it was also Alice Waters that you met during this time. And she really had a profound effect on your life. Tell us a bit about her, because she seems like this inspirational culinary fairy godmother. She certainly is. Well, she's godmother to my son, actually. Mm. Lucky um, him. Very lucky. I think she's probably got more godchildren than she can shake a stick at. <laughs> but no, Alice has been my mentor and my friend for many, many years. And in fact, I have her sitting on my shoulder every, every day of my life. When I'm looking at a crate of tomatoes that's just arrived from the market or a dish that's being presented on the bar before we take it to the table, or I'm discussing menus with the chefs, I, I just have Alice's advice on my shoulder at all times. Let's pause there and talk about the fourth desert island dish. And that is your favorite sandwich. Ah, I think it probably has to be one that I have in my new book. Um, I know because there are lots of delicious sandwiches in the new book. It's very nice. I'm not a a great sandwich person, but, uh, but I do like open sandwiches because one can really go overboard with the filling and, and be modest with the the other bit. But I think the tuna sandwich is my favorite, probably. And I cheat by using either canned or or uh, preserved tuna from, we buy from a wonderful supplier in, in Brittany. And then homemade mayonnaise. And then a lovely rustic bread, either a sourdough or a seeded rye or something with a bit of chew to it. And then a little sprinkling of either landcress or watercress or radishes um, and a big squeeze of lemon. But um, but certainly an open sandwich would be my favourite. So you were in America for five years. And then when you came back to London in 1983, you found a site. And with loans from your father and the bank and some cool-headed advice from the restaurateur, Peter Langan, you opened Clark's. I wondered, what was that cool-headed advice? He said, keep the kitchen where it is in this dreadfully run-down, dreadful Italian restaurant that served everything out of a can, I think. But I wanted the kitchen on the ground floor because I wanted all my customers to see straight into the kitchen. He said, absolutely no way. Keep the kitchen where it is. You'll waste so much money moving it, moving the water, moving the electrics, moving the gas. 
just keep it where it is. And it was invaluable. He was a great friend and full of advice. And it wasn't just me. He, he, um, he helped, he helped a lot of us. And it was a, it was a success pretty much right from the start. We were very lucky. Yes. Um, we opened a week before Christmas. My builders were dragging and dragging right the way through December. And finally on the 17th, they said that everything was ready and up and running. And, uh, yes, I've forgotten the question. <laughs> Don't worry. It was, um, that you were successful right from the start. <laughs> yeah. No, we were very, very, very lucky. We, our first review was, um, written by a lady who, um, went past us on the bus every morning to her workplace, which must have been at the bottom of Kensington Church Street, I think. And uh, she had a part-time job as the restaurant critic, I think, for London, one of the London radio stations. And she gave us a very sweet review within our first week. And then I think Paul Levy came and he ended up writing a lovely review for The Observer. And then I met, through Peter Langan, I met... What is her name? Is it Lindsay Barham? Lindsay Barham. I met <laughs> Lindsay Barham through Peter Langan. And Lindsay brought a friend to dinner one night and I was introduced to him and they had a lovely time. And at the end of the meal, he asked very kindly if he could take a menu away with him. And I said it was no problem because we changed the menu every night. So why would I need it the following day? And then he called me the following day and introduced himself as Drew Smith, as the editor of Good Food Guide, and I nearly fell off my chair. <laughs> but he was very, very sweet and very complimentary and asked me lots of questions and wrote a lovely, lovely article for one of the Saturday newspapers. And then we got our first wonderful review in the Good Food Guide a few months later. Wow, that must have been such sort of validation that what you were doing, you were on the right track. It was, it was very wonderful to be, to hear the appreciation of people such as them. Yeah, all of them. When asked about alternative career plans, you say that any career change will now come in the next life, but you hope to make it as an opera singer. And I wondered, <laughs> is, is that really, was that ever a serious dream? That's really. You know, it's really true. I would, I would have loved to have gone into music. I think rereading my school reports, it was clear that I enjoyed music probably more than anything else at school. I was pretty hopeless at anything else, in, uh, certainly on that, any academic level. I loved art and I loved music, but probably I think my parents and my, my teachers at school, which I love, I loved my school, but I think they should have pushed me into a life of music probably. But anyway, it didn't happen. But so in the next life, yes, I will. <laughs> and um, yes, if my voice was ever good enough, I would love to be singing at Covent Garden one day. Opera's loss is the culinary world's gain. So I think we can't be too <laughs> sad about that, Sally. I know when you celebrated the restaurant turning 30, you had a big celebration and the menu exactly mirrored what the first menu was in 1984. Yes, what, that's what right. What was that menu? It was uh, a very simple salad with um, smoked Scottish salmon, um, which we sliced very, very thinly and long rather than across. And we served it with pink grapefruit segments and little wedges of, of avocado with watercress, I think. And then the main course was a loin of lamb, which we'd 
boned and grilled and sliced medium rare. And we would have had a little selection of roasted vegetables with that being December. Then I know we didn't have a sauce to go with that because I'd completely forgotten that to make a sauce, one needed to have a simmering stock two or three days beforehand. So there was no (laughs) stock, no stock, no glaze, no sauce. And then I honestly can't remember what the dessert was. It's all a bit of a bit of a haze. Um, I'm guessing there wasn't a glacier cherry in sight. There was no (laughs) glacier cherry, no cherries. Well, no, because it was December. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Okay, let's talk about the fifth desert island dish. And that's the dish you eat the most often. I think it would have to be a salad. And I would be very, very happy to live the rest of my life as a vegetarian. I think probably fennel being one of my favorite ingredients. It could be this time of year, I would um, roast some cob nuts, perhaps, and um, maybe some summer savory chopped up and um, sprinkled over possibly a little slither of fresh goat cheese like a parosh goat cheese perhaps but it would definitely have to be a salad and it would definitely be cool or cold just (laughs) (laughs) your new cookbook your third and you say final and I really love the story behind it in that it was written for your son Samuel almost as a manual for him to take to university with him but that its publication has actually coincided with his graduation which I think is very relatable. (laughs) (laughs) Yes I dragged my feet somewhat. I I can blame it on various lockdowns I think that coming in and out of that I I, my eye was off the ball but um, yes in the meanwhile Samuel's graduated and just about to head into the next stage of his career but it was really written originally to be just a few little tips on how to how to organize a kitchen how to settle a chopping board how to wash up how to dice an onion wash your tea towels as often as your pants i like i like that line yeah um but then it sort of grew into a little recipe book as well and the more recipes i added the more i realized that actually this possibly could become a book and possibly not just for students not just for young people but for people who perhaps simply didn't have a clue in the kitchen. And I think, as I say in the book, how to get a bag of groceries turning into a menu to present to your family or your friends. Do you enjoy the process of writing? I love it, actually. Yes, I do. I do need peace and quiet. I can't, uh, I can't have music playing in the background. I can't write with music playing in the background. I need silence. But I do enjoy it and I and I love um, as any writer would know when the flow starts um, that it is it is as thrilling as to me putting my hand on the door handle of Chez Panisse yeah oh that's amazing <laughs> I think I think writers either fall into one of two camps you either sort of really in, in love the process or you really love the process being over <laughs> like you, <laughs> you love the end result and you're sort of glad that it's in the background <laughs> yeah yeah no I I'm I'm glad it is over but I uh, I still I, I can still find bits and pieces in the book that I could tweak if it ever went into a second run <laughs> Yeah, the book itself, I feel like 
nowadays it's very hard to come up with an original concept for a book, but it does actually feel like you've done something quite different and unique. And I really like the way that it's set out. It's a really, it's a really beautiful book. In the book, you refer to Samuel's edible education, which is such a lovely phrase and something I guess we all embark on every day. Our, edu- our edible education is never complete. You mentioned how formative those early days of his childhood spent in France and Italy were for him becoming a good eater. Is that something that you, you do really believe? Absolutely, yes. And edible education is straight out of Alice Waters' mouth. I didn't, I didn't create that. It's all down to her, but that's exactly what, what her mission in in life is and taking Samuel to the markets of Provence or Luberon or um, the Italian markets or the fish market in Venice or wherever it might have been it's it's the one wonderful way that one could educate one's child into the the love of the table and to appreciate the provenance of ingredients and the the wide variety of uh, I mean just looking at a, an array of tomatoes is um, stunning enough in a in a market such as that and is he really passionate about food now he really is yes I wouldn't say we argue about food but <laughs> we do have heated conversations about food or the method of recipes or the timing of recipes. Um, And yeah, no, it's good. It's healthy. So in the book, you have a chapter on dinners to impress and your top tip for hosting a dinner party is to not try too hard. So let's talk about the sixth desert island dish, and that is your go-to dinner party dish. Well, I think I'm a bit of a cheat here because I, it, when I am entertaining people, it tends to be at the restaurant, and I love inviting friends to the restaurant. That's how I do dinner parties. I, I ask my wonderful team of chefs and my wonderful team of um, dining room staff to um, to do it all for me. Oh, the best <laughs> kind of dinner party you could ever come to. If you owned a restaurant, why would you not do that? On Desert Island Dishes, we have a cookbook corner. So I'd love to know what is your most treasured cookbook? I think probably it would have to be one of Alice's books. And I would say, without a doubt, it would be either her vegetable book or the book on fruits. They're so beautifully produced with wonderful um, lino cuts by Patty Curtin, illustrating it throughout. No, it would definitely be, be one of those. We're on to the seventh and final Desert Island dish, and that is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the Desert Island. Could it be a last menu rather than a dish? Definitely. So it would definitely be crab salad, fresh fresh crab salad, freshly picked with um, delicious lemon mayonnaise or maybe even an aioli, and then a very simple but wonderful roast chicken as the main course, and then a perfect piece of fruit to finish off with so if i could have anything it would have to be a late july pluot from chez panisse amazing sally clark those are your desert island dishes thank you so much so there we have it another delicious day of desert island dishes Don't forget that you can rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Someone left a lovely one recently and said that the interview with the butcher was one of their favorites. That was one of my very first ones. And the butcher is my friend Struan, who set up Provenance Butchers, the best butchers in London. We recorded that sitting in my car. (laughs) The good old days. 
If you don't already, come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes. You can sign up for the newsletter and find a whole host of different recipes at DesertIslandDishes.co. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.